Good evening, everyone. My name is Father Charles Trujillo. I'm the director here at the Catholic Information Center. And I want, I want to welcome all of you present today with us in person and also online. It's my pleasure also to um, welcome Father Patrick and Father um, Jacob for this uh, book launch event. The uh, Father Patrick Mary Briscoe and Father Jacob Bertrand Jansik. They are um, they just wrote this marvelous book, Saint Dominic's Way of Life: A Path to Knowing and Loving God. Now, Father, both Father Jacob and Father Patrick are also co-hosts of a popular and lively Dominican <laughs> uh, Fires podcast, God's Planning. And Father Jacob is also the director of vocations of the Dominican Province of Saint Joseph. Father Patrick is editor-in-chief of the Catholic News and Spirituality website, Aliteia. And with that, please me, join me in welcoming, in welcoming Father Patrick, who will start off us with, uh, with this discussion on St. Dominic. Thank you very much. Father Jacob Bertrand and I flipped a coin to see who would go first. It was very scientific. That's not true. I insisted on going first. Because that way I could put you to sleep and then Father Jacob Bertrand could wake you back up. On Sunday, uh, we celebrated the fifth anniversary of Mother Teresa's canonization. And it occurred to me that Mother Teresa is impossible to really understand without the context of Calcutta. And I got to thinking about other saints similarly. John Paul II, for example, makes very little sense if you don't understand his work, especially with young people in his time as a parish priest and as a professor in Poland. And for our time together tonight, as we turn our attention to St. Dominic, in order to have a, a rich understanding of who St. Dominic is, rather than read to you excerpts from the book, I thought that I would give a little bit of a presentation of St. Dominic's time. That is what the landscape of the church was in his day. And particularly, in order to understand St. Dominic, we have to understand a heresy. So you're talking to a Dominican friar. Well, you're listening to a Dominican friar talk, and we made it several seconds before we started talking about things like heresy. Uh, this is deep in our Dominican blood to be concerned with doctrine because it's the context of our founder. And the landscape which St. Dominic faced uh, had an increasing need. Uh, there was a great need of, uh, in that day for a clear and inviting explanation of Catholic doctrine to face, uh, to come face to face with the Albigensian heresy. So what I want to do tonight is to propose five aspects of this heresy and to show how St. Dominic encounters it face to face. And the reason this is so particularly interesting, I think, is because Albigensianism is a kind of perennial heresy. That is, it took things from the past and added them into its own system of doctrine. And we'll find, as we examine these elements of Albigensianism, we'll find that strains of this thought are, in fact, much to our displeasure, <laughs> very much alive today. So with that, let's turn to, uh, to our, first, uh, our first comment about Albigensianism. In his incredible foreword to our book, Father Peter John Cameron writes, in August of 2020, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published a report about the increased adverse behavioral health conditions brought on by the pandemic. In one particular month, 
11% of those polled indicated that they had seriously considered committing suicide. If you were to change that age group to persons aged between 18 and 24, that statistic rose to one in four persons who seriously committed, has considered committing suicide. Our claim is that this is not merely a health crisis, this is an existential crisis. That these young people, especially, but others as well, are struggling in desperate need. They're willing even to sacrifice their very self in the hope of attaining liberation, security, and answer, peace, or something more. St. Dominic encountered among the Albigensians the same kind of existential crisis, the same kind of sadness, a crisis of meaning and worth. And when he met it, he stopped in his tracks. He gave his entire life over to inviting those souls to meet the something more that their hearts long for. We might say in St. Dominic's day, in technical terms, the church was a disaster, <laughs> that the landscape have faced very many challenges. And the first of these, the first of these among the Albigensians is the problem of evil. So this is really where our consideration begins. The Albigensians are also known as the Cathars, as some of you no doubt know. This name for them comes from the Greek word, I feel like the, the grandfather in my big fat Greek wedding whenever I do this, from the Greek word Katharos, meaning pure. The movement, the Albigensian movement, the Cathar movement is fundamentally about purity or goodness in the face of evil. So the answer in their doctrine that they propose to the question of evil, to the experience of evil, to the problem of evil faced in life is that there is not one God, but there are two gods locked in a kind of perennial conflict, that there is a good God and an evil God. This is not an Albigensian idea. It's a reanimation, a representation of an idea from a much earlier time, from the Manichaeism, even that St. Augustine faced in his own day. The Persian philosopher Mani taught that there was this cosmic battle between these two forces of good and evil. And in pop culture, we often represent this conflict um, by considering Star Wars, right? Where there's a good empire and an evil empire, and at times it seems like the evil empire is as powerful or even more powerful than the forces for good. According to this view of the cosmos, the good God could not be the cause of suffering or evil in the world and would not allow it. It was a kind of, again, a purity. For scriptural evidence for their view, the Albigensians cited the verse from the Gospels that a sound tree could not bear evil fruit, nor would a bad tree bear good fruit. So if one simply has clearer trees or separate trees, one easily solves the problem. St. Augustine of Hippo, when he considered these arguments in his confessions, famously solved the problem by arguing that evil is not a substance in itself, it's not a thing, but evil rather is a privation of a good which should be there. He says, whatever is good, whatever is, is good, pardon me. Evil origin of which I have speaking as no substance at all, for if it were a substance, it would be good. I understood, therefore, and it was clear to me that thou made all things good, nor is there any substance at all not made by thee, because all that thou made is not equal, each by itself is good, and the sum of all of them is very good, for our God made all things very good. 
So this is particularly relevant because St. Augustine had fallen prey to this Manichaeanism. He was an adherent of this doctrine proposed by Manich before his return to the faith. And it's very interesting then to see these Manichaean ideas being readapted by the Albigensians, that these ideas came back, these perennial questions about the nature of evil and the contest with the good God. In the face of these doctrines, St. Dominic found himself defending the goodness of creation. And so as we consider our founder, we can consider his love of creation. Stories of Dominic walking from town to town uh, portray a man who is very much living in the world made by God. We're told that St. Dominic would walk barefoot, carrying his shoes out of penance. I don't do such things. I always wear my shoes. But it gives us a picture of a man very in touch with creation, someone who knew the countryside, who was not uh, set apart from it, who couldn't look at the world and declare that the world had been created by an evil god. He knew that the world was good and that it belonged to the god who was good. And so he frequently sang at the top of his voice, I love these stories, that St. Dominic would sing Veni Creator Spiritus, that beautiful hymn to the Holy Spirit, Come Holy Ghost, and such other hymns of, of praise. So this question, again, of the contest between a good God and resolving the problem of evil is the first thing that we ought to consider when we think of Albigensianism. And it's the first thing that we ought to see St. Dominic responding to in his way. And we can talk more about that. Um, but I just present this problem, this aspect of Albigensianism to you in our consideration this evening. The second major concern of the Albigensians is that if an evil God created the world, then matter is evil. So a kind of dualism is presented by their philosophy that puts a person at conflict uh, in his or herself. The spirit, they taught, must be freed from the flesh. In this moment, we might think back to the words of Father Peter John Cameron, with which we began thinking about the, the desire to free oneself, the desire even uh, to commit suicide, to liberate the spirit from the flesh. To set the light substance free from the pollution of matter was the ultimate aim for many Albigensians. For them, the goal of life was the liberation of the soul from the captivity of the body. Anything that served the purpose of the flesh, then, was suspicious. So listen to these teachings. Salvation is impossible to the married, for the married state, in the married state, Tom one. So bad news for all of you who are married. The idea of parentage is the curse of the world, taught another. Or even to multiply souls is to multiply damnations, taught a third. If we pause and think about these arguments, they're not very far from statements we hear in our own day. The Earth's resources are limited and cannot support a growing population, say some. Others argue, I can't imagine bringing a child into such a world. These expressions which belong to our generation are not very far from these doctrinal claims of the Albigensians. The kind of freedom from the flesh, again, this suicide, this uh, self-induced starvation as they liked to practice it, that was the height of their practice, taught that the body was not a holy thing. The bodies and souls were separated human persons were not integrated. Uh, 
Dominic, the champion of truth, preached the goodness of the body, the goodness of marriage. His followers, the Dominicans, would adopt philosophical language, particularly that of Aristotle, to argue clearly for centuries, as we do even today, that human beings are not body alone nor soul alone, but a body-soul composite, that spirit and flesh are the human person. In the mysteries of faith, our Lord's resurrection and Our Lady's assumption proclaim these truths to us in the most vivid and radical fashion. Okay, so we have this second idea. After first considering the problem of evil, which is very much a living question, the reconciliation of sufferings in the face of the goodness of God. That's our first point. The second here, we have this question of the nature of the flesh, the goodness of marriage, uh, being at peace in one's own flesh in a kind of internal contest between uh, spirit and body. This is the second. The third point that the Albigensians encountered, which also resonates greatly with us, is the reality of a clergy that was lax and their witness was typically lavish or even scandalous to the gospel. So uh, Guy Bedwell, one Catholic historian, one Dominican historian, puts it this way. He says, the bishops of the time could only be reproached for their weakness, for their passivity. The word bishop means overseer. And another chronicler of them would say that they slept more than they watched. They were not overseers. This tragedy within the clergy at the time, particularly the weakness of the episcopacy, the inability of Catholic bishops to counter the challenges of Albigensium, the lax morality of the clergy, um, were a perfect storm. The Albigensian clerics practiced a radical kind of asceticism, a strict adherence to the most extreme kinds of penance. And this witness was very enticing so once presented with um, a kind of a, an image, a clear image of, a, of an apparently holy Albigensian cleric, uh, people tended to follow their doctrinal teaching. Priests are called, of course, to be signposts for the kingdom of heaven. Living as the angels already do, we are neither married nor given in marriage. We priests are supposed to stand apart to live lives worthy of our noble calling. It is thus, rightly, all the more terrible when we fail. So in the face of lax clergy and even scandal in his time, St. Dominic revived the apostolic way of life, the gospel simplicity, the imitation of life of the apostles, adopting holy poverty clad in a simple white habit. He lived truly the evangelical way of life, which the Albigensians themselves praised and embraced. Our own day prizes authenticity. So in the kind of good Christians, as they were called at the time, um, these Albigensians, who were not really Christians at all by their doctrine, as we've been exploring, uh, they demonstrated something, and their witness was a kind of authenticity that was attractive to people. And St. Dominic saw this, and was renewed by it and promoted renewal in the church through devotion to apostolic way of life, particularly, again, to penance and to gospel poverty. The fourth thought that I want to present about the Albigensians, germane to our own day, is that they also had a radical rejection of tradition. So I should have prefaced all of these comments by saying that talking about Albigensianism 
as if it was a kind of united doctrine is actually a very difficult thing to do. It's difficult to do that uh, because the inquisitors burned all of their works. <laughs> um, so the, the, the witness of the historical record is a little bit complicated. And it's, and it's complicated because, uh, too, it's not as if this heresy was in itself a united thing. There was no Albigensian pope. There was no Albigensian magisterium clarifying these doctrines. And the, the fact that they were all a kind of mishmash of these different ideas, as I've been pointing to Manichaeism, or we might see in the kind of scandal of clergy, uh, uh, Donatism, Redivivus, um, uh, it, it just makes, it makes the day uh, just a true mess, which for our considerations tonight is really important because Dominic, in his holiness and clarity, entered into that and was really offering the church something grand. So if we move to this fourth point and we, and we think about their, their unmasked rejection of tradition, it's all the more alarming. It's clear that Albigensian is, is really even difficult to describe as a Christian heresy. It was some kind of alternative religion. They rejected prayers to the saints, uh, prayers for the dead, practices common in the day like pilgrimages to holy places and holy sites. Uh, we've been talking about the, the, the nature of the body and the rejection of, of created matter, believing it to be evil. They rejected the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. These are all things that Catholics uh, profess our faith to every Sunday in the creed. These are, these are fundamental tenets of our faith, and we have the Cathars rejecting them en masse. St. Dominic was the kind of man raised in, in tradition. He lived and breathed it his whole life. Unlike other saints, he didn't experience a radical conversion back to the church. That's the story of Augustine or Ignatius of Loyola, but it's not the story of Dominic. From his youth, St. Dominic was raised in a family faithful to these traditions. And he went and studied for the priesthood at a young age uh, with his uncle, who was a diocesan priest. St. Dominic's mother is a blessed. One of his brothers entered our order and is a blessed. Another brother entered the order and is not a blessed. We perhaps have more questions about him. What was he up to? But one of his brothers is a blessed. So we have a sense of, uh, of, a, of a fullness of faith lived there uh, in their home from an early age. Finally, the last point that I want to make about the Albigensians that I think is very germane to our day, after thinking about this kind of wholesale and radical rejection of tradition, uh, we, ought to think of, we ought to think of their spirit. So at its heart, Albigensianism proposes to answer questions, to provide meanings behind everything, to address people's natural curiosity and explain it away. So they adopted a lot of Manichaeism's crazy myths. You want to read some wild stuff? Look at the myths of Manichaeism. They're eons and all kinds of wild, all kinds of wild things at play there. Our age, we as Catholics um, today, ought to be sensitive to this. We ought to be readied, as St. Dominic was, to, to address people's questions. Uh, this is what he did when he founded the Order of Preachers. So rather than dedicating his whole project to holy poverty, which was something he could have done, he took the call to the apostolic way of life very seriously after all. Rather than dedicating his project to the service of holy poverty, St. Dominic dedicated his project to the service of the intellectual life. The Dominican historian B. Jarrett writes, For Dominic, the very truths of the faith were to be the message of his order and the burden of its prophecy. 
It was precisely the exposition of the deepest mysteries of the kingdom of God that he meant to be the exact purpose of his own mission and that of his children. Jared continues. It will be remembered that in all of the accounts of his preaching in Languedoc, those of which we have any record, it is repeatedly stated that he argued with the heretics, that he wrote books against them, that he disputed with them in public, and that the story of his enterprise among the Abajois was a confounding of their theories by a theological defense of the Catholic creed. So again tonight, I wanted to present these basic tenets of Albigensianism to give you a sense of what St. Dominic encountered as he passed through the south of France, to give you a glimpse of what was behind his project. Because at the end of the day, when confronting all of these things, these grave challenges uh, of the Albigensians, St. Dominic's answer was the order of preachers. It was a way of life that he entrusted to us and to the church. And that's the promise of the book, that Dominic's answer was the answer to his age, but his answer is not exclusively the answer to his age. His answer is an answer, a way of life, that answers these perennial, addresses these perennial questions, these perennial concerns. So to that end, um, Father Jacob Bertrand will now move to exactly what it is that St. Dominic offers us, and the elements of his spiritual doctrine and way of life that are perhaps most germane. I hope that was that applause was for me and not for Father Patrick, I'm sure. So if we think then about St. Dominic and the way that Father Patrick uh, set up for us, we have, uh, we've been given uh, by Father Patrick the, the sort of historical setting in which St. Dominic lived, in which he preached, in which he founded the order. So we have that bookend at the beginning, as it were, of Dominican time, really where all things begin. Um, we, you know, the you have Dominic, you have Thomas. Jesus was sort of a proto-Thomas. So it's really with Saint Dominic where the beginning of history and time, time starts. So let's uh, we'll look at the the other end, the other bookend of Saint Dominic's life, um, the beginning now to the end. And the book will kind of cover the middle when you read it and reread it and all of these things. But to look at what Saint Dominic left us, as as Father. Patrick said. Um, this year is, uh, we celebrated uh, last month on August 6th, the 800th anniversary of St. Dominic's death, which is a great feast day for us. And as we were talking before, um, the Father Patrick, Father Austin, and I, so we were chatting before about some Dominican blesseds and how we are um, not that great at promoting our own saints. You know, they remain at blesseds and we lose interest. So too with Dominic's the feast day of his death, we it came and it was great. And now you know we're in September, and it's we'll wait for the next for the ninth hundredth anniversary. But at least today we can think about what it is that Saint Saint Dominic left us. And as as Father Patrick was saying, and as we we talk about in the book, a lot can be said about Saint Dominic uh, from what he did to where he went, where he traveled. He he's a native Spaniard, but traveled from France to Italy and across really the whole south of, of Europe, where where he encountered this heres heresy that Father Patrick sp uh, spoke about. We could talk about the way in which he interacted with with the people to whom he preached. Um, there's this great story, this famous story, this kind of iconic story of the innkeeper, Dominic's interaction with the innkeeper or, or the heretics or, you know, whoever he preached against. Um, and though it's true, 
all the same. Uh, we don't have a lot from Dominic, from his hand, really. We have almost nothing except a couple of short, of short letters. All the same, we can say a lot about him. Uh, perhaps, though, the greatest example of this, of this, what we can say about him, is, is not our book, which is admittedly not terribly long, it's just about 130 pages, but is the biography of St. Dominic written by uh, another Dominican whose name is Vicaire uh, from the 1960s. Uh, Vicaire's, I looked today, um, it's called St. Dominic and His Times. So if you have a lot of time, you can pick up Vicaire's copy. I looked on Amazon today to see uh, the page count. Vicaire's uh, Biography of St. Dominic is just 560 pages long, and it's it's relatively affordable at $579.95 on Amazon, so save your pennies, get, get your copies. Um, but a part of our spiritual formation and our formation when, when Father Patrick and I entered the order and when our brothers entered the order um, was to read Vicaire's tome, his, his massive book on St. Dominic's life. And we're introduced to everything Dominican, everything St. Dominic, from the soil content and the topography of his hometown in Spain, Calaruega, to the intricacies of the, the infighting of the nobles and acquaintances who were you know, in Spain and in the south of France at the time. Uh, I guess the point of all this, of what I'm saying about St. Dominic and, and Vicaire and uh, us knowing a lot of what he did and where he went and to whom he spoke and how he spoke, um, is that there's a lot to say about St. Dominic. And we can analyze what D Dominic leaves us uh, from a whole host of different angles. We could look at the way he traveled. We could look at the way he interacted with heretics or with faithful Catholics or with his brothers or with the, the nuns that first really founded, well, he founded the order with, with our nuns first. But um, where Dominic's genius really lies is not in zooming in on this or that particular detail. Where Dominic's um, relatability, and we could even say availability, really lies is by taking a sort of more global look at Dominic's life, at taking a more um, general view of Dominic's life. Why? Well, we'll talk about this for a second. Uh, we can look at Dominic in his own life in the order that he founded, both for friars and sisters alike, and then in the way of life that he leaves for all of us to follow, we can look at that um, as a sort of holistic or integrated or um, whole way of living. We can look at St. Dominic, his life, his spirituality that we can adopt, his way of looking at the scriptures and approaching the truths of the faith that he preached and that we come to know ourselves, we can look at it as we can look at him as a holistic Dominic. Now that might be kind of a weird kind of way to think about a saint, you know, kind of new agey kind of crystals and these kind of things. Not what I mean, but as one who is complete, one who presents a whole, an integrated way of living, of approaching our Lord, of approaching the spiritual life of understanding the created world, as Father Patrick was saying, understanding the created world and its relation to supernatural things. And it's this approach, zooming out, uh, I guess reveling in the 800 years of Dominican tradition that we're privileged to sit in, uh, where we can approach Dominic and his genius. Not just for the friars, not just for sisters, but for all of the faithful. What resonates when we come to know St. Dominic and to follow him, 
uh, is that St. Dominic was a man who understood what it meant to be a human being and what it meant to pursue Christ with the entirety of our humanity, not just with our minds. Often Dominicans get criticized for being too intellectual and affectively empty, and that's probably true. Not how St. Dominic would have it, though. Not to follow Christ just with our minds, but with our hearts, with our bodies, with our souls, with everything that we are. If we look at those first heretics to whom St. Dominic preached, who Father Patrick was introducing us to, we know they were theologically incorrect. But they were also anthropologically incorrect. They atomized the person into discrete parts, decided what was good, what was bad, and then decided what to keep and what not to keep. And we experience a very similar reality in our world today. The false but radical divide between the speculative and the practical of knowing and doing something, of thinking and living well. Uh, the disjunct between what we do and who we are in our bodies versus our souls or our psyche or our minds. And even for Christians in the Christian life, the pursuing of virtue, we encounter this re a real difficulty sometimes in integrating our pursuit of virtue, our pursuit of Christ, our relationship with him into our everyday living. It's a common enough struggle. Though St. Dominic had a great love for the scriptures, though he had a great love for the church, for Our Lady, he pursued virtue, notably chastity, something we talk about in the book, though he preached tirelessly. We don't know St. Dominic. We don't relate to St. Dominic. The church doesn't give us St. Dominic as the patron of the scriptures or as the patron of the church or as the patron of Our Lady, or any of these things. We know him as the great contemplator, the great preacher of Christ. We can look at all those parts, and in ways we are falling into what I'm saying not to do in writing the book, in that there are chapters dedicated to particular things that Dominic was devoted to, and of course that's a fine enough way to approach him, but we're, it's a way by which to begin to understand and then to take a step back and, and look at all of the facets as they contribute to the whole. We can look at all of the parts and we can break, break St. Dominic down to get to know his history, his personality, all of these things. But ultimately, St. Dominic is best known, was best known to those who loved him while here on earth and to those of us who have come to know him through history and through the charism of our order. He's best known as a man uh, who was whole and pursued wholeness and holiness. And that's not something simply on offer for St. Dominic, but for each of us, and is really, at the end of the day, the aim of the Christian life. This wholeness or integratedness or holistic, whatever we want to call it, is most readily apparent in the example of St. Dominic's contemplation in his spirituality. Now, spirituality, I don't know if I like the word with respect to Dominic and Dominican life, uh, it's a bit anachronistic. I don't know if, if we could say St. Dominic establishes spirituality, but we can look at the way he lived and incorporate those practices, uh, those, I guess, spiritual things, fine enough, uh, into our own life. It's, it's, easy, it's an easy enough word to use. The Christian life for Dominic was one of deep and continual prayer, but a prayer that was rooted in, in relationship with Christ in the relationship that Christ established with his apostles, namely, 
that of friendship. This summer, um, I had the opportunity to spend 11 weeks with college students in Colorado. It would have taken time off of, uh, or would, it would have decreased my time in purgatory, I'm sure, but at every opportunity I get, I complain about it, so all of that's now wasted. But the fact remains, I spent 11 weeks in Colorado with college students, and a focus for those students over the course of the summer in their spiritual formation was to focus on on the on the uh, the image of the father from the parable of the prodigal son, the way by which they relate to divine fatherhood, and the mercy that is bestowed upon us from the father, and this focus and my being there on fatherhood and our sonship and our daughtership made me realize in a new way that this reality of God, uh, his fatherhood, however true and beautiful, is not the prime way that a Dominican relates to God. It's not the prime way a Dominican relates to God. Rather, coming from St. Dominic, and we could say Dominican spirituality, it's the Dominican heart and mind relates to God as friend. As a Dominican at heart is an apostle, a Dominican relates to God as friend who sits with him, who studies with him, who preaches him, And what is great and unique about friendship is that as relationships develop, as friendships develop, they carve out a space for individual flourishing, for our own happiness, for our own wholeness. St. Dominic leaves us this example in the way by which we come to know Christ. Sure, as father, as creator, as lover of our souls, as redeemer, but as friend. Not an object to be studied or analyzed, not some talisman to ask favors from, but a friend. What St. Dominic has left us in this rich Dominican spirituality, if there's such a thing, is a spirituality of friendship with the divine, with God himself. And it's the nature of friendship to demand everything to give ourselves to the other, all that we are, all that we are to the other. We can begin to see how St. Dominic's intimacy with the scriptures, which we talk about in the book, of course, his devotion to the church and to truth, the next two chapters in the book, uh, they don't simply fit nicely together. They're not just convenient to sort of follow a pattern of to, to write a book or a schema or an outline to write a book but they are necessary parts of this friendship. To know the word alive, to pursue truth himself. We can see how the love of others through human friendship and through the flourishing of virtue, particularly that of chastity, is so necessary and contribute to the whole of who we are as human beings. Why Our Lady is at the heart of this life. And in the end, why we must share this friendship why we can't hold it back, because ultimately that is the heart of preaching. To encounter our Lord, not as someone other or out there or remote, but as one intimately united in friendship. And have that beautiful relationship pour over into the way we live, into the way we witness, into the way we relate. When we talk about St. Dominic and what he left us, we can't help but talk about all of these pieces of his life, because St. Dominic cannot be understood without them. When one is missing, he doesn't make sense. 
To talk about friendship with God without the scriptures or without the church or without Our Lady or without preaching doesn't make sense. And it is through St. Dominic's witness that even 800 years after his death, there's still something there. There's still something there, not just to look at in a historical way, but to look at in a Christian way, in a way that's alive and tempting and attractive and ultimately pursuable, livable, attainable. And by way of conclusion, perhaps the greatest thing about St. Dominic is that what we say about him about who he was and what he left is not his alone, but it is what it means to be a human being, a Christian, a lover of God, a person without devotion to the scriptures or outside of the church, divorced from truth, without Our Lady, alone, friendless, without the virtues, who cannot witness to the glory of God, begs the question, is that a person? Well, in one sense, we have to say yes. Human dignity permeates even in the worst of circumstances. But in another sense, it's a person diminished, a person lacking, a person without. The radical, radical conviction of every Dominican of every follower of St. Dominic in his order or just devoted to him, is that St. Dominic saw the person even in the most diminished of circumstances. And he knew that Christ, that friendship with Christ, was the only answer, was the only way to heal not just this or that part of brokenness, but to heal the person, to bring him or her to an integrated whole life of holiness of friendship with God. So we'll leave you with that. We, I think hopefully, between the two of us, provided a sort of bookend to St. Dominic, to the start of the order with the Albigensians and a little bit of what he's left us and what we can look forward to with his intercession and our devotion to him. And I guess the book, either ours or Vicar's or another one, fills out the middle. Um, so I think we'll do a bit of take a few of your questions and happy to do that. But thank you so much for coming out this evening.